0: Okay, welcome back to Collateral Banter, episode 47. Episode 47 of Collateral Banter. I'm your host, Danny T. This podcast, in case people don't know, I am following the decline of American democracy almost on a daily basis at this point, and then I podcast about it and any random other topics that I can get on when I get people to come on and talk to me about other issues, normally issues that involve American culture, and American society, and really it's about sociology and cultural understanding of where America is today and what has been going on in the past, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years. And I want to talk about a couple things this episode. I am going to talk about them. And so on this episode, I'm going to talk about what I suspect are the most dangerous signs for American democracy that I see today. Yes, one of the signs that I see in American democracy today is going to be the election in 342 days. And so we're we're just about under a year until Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020. Want to talk about that day because I'm pretty sure the level of collective anxiety in the country will go from a, some, a usual 7, 8, or 9 to like a 20, right? It's one of those days that will live in a historical context, and many will look back on that day November 3rd, 2020, as a day that's gonna define America. You're gonna hear about that regardless of what happens, regardless of who wins the election. I uh, suspect that it's going to be a wild day. Motions are gonna be out there. People are gonna be calling at everybody they know. People are gonna be texting back and forth. The election is going to be a collective experience that I don't think we've seen. First of all, the difference between 2020 and 2016 is nobody quite believed that Donald Trump could win. No one believed it until it happened. And I'll never forget it. I stayed up until he spoke. And I remember the screen at the bottom of the TV showing the stock market and the almost a 1,000-point collapse. It was one of those kind of shocking moments that this could happen. And so in 2020, there's no more shock factor. There's no more shock value anymore. But to win re-election, if Trump wins re-election, if Trump wins re-election, people are going to lose their mind because look at how much power he can get if he wins 2020. Donald Trump gets to appoint one or two more Supreme Court justices You can take it from a 5-4 conservative court, potentially the 6-3, 7-2. I mean, the the ramifications of that alone, without any passing any laws, is going to be just, you know, fundamentally changing America. Unless the Democrats captured the Senate as well. And then what? Filibuster him the whole time, you know, stop him uh, in the Senate from passing anything. In some ways, the crisis was built in. The crisis exists because people voted in Donald Trump. And so now you might live with the consequences. And I saw a report by Moody's a while back that said if the economy continues on its current path, the election results are likely to be in favor of Donald Trump. I think that's, that's a warning sign for those who think that it will be easy to defeat him because the last three and a half years of seeing Donald Trump means nobody's going to go out and vote for him. And I think people need to wake up and say, no, people will go back and out and vote for him because they'll argue, is my life better or worse than four years ago? For many Americans, the answer is my life isn't worse because we elected Donald Trump. They're going to use some of the comments by people who are, and I think rightfully freaked out by Donald Trump's authoritarianism. And those who go out and vote for Trump and say, you see, they feared Donald Trump was going to become a dictator, not hold an election, cancel an election. And none of those things came to pass, right? Now, I think this day, November 3rd, will also be day people don't forget because what if Donald Trump loses? And if he loses, people are already writing about how he will spin the election as saying that there is massive fraud he'll go to the courts he'll say all oh, the votes aren't counted he has another avenue and say well until the electoral college convenes and votes i haven't lost and and technically he's right and i'm pretty sure that's the path he'll go if he loses the electoral college so it'll be an interesting Day without a doubt. It's a day people can will not forget. It's almost a day you got to record, record people's (laughs) waking moments until the end of the night, which in some ways I can't wait. I wish you could fast forward through time right now, just fast forward and get to November 3rd, 2020. It will be a day we don't forget. So I felt like I needed to say something about that. Also, my fear of Donald Trump is let's say he wins re election. So I've been thinking this in my mind recently how could he stay on beyond? 2024. How does Donald Trump stay in power without the term limits on the U.S. presidency? And I came up with a way. I came up with a clever way that I, I wanted to discuss. So let's say Donald Trump wins on November 3rd, 2020. He governs until 2024. And let's say that there's an election in 2022 that helps the Republicans capture the House or enough Democrats break away from the National Party and begin working with Trump. Okay, let's just say something like that happens. And that part in Congress is going to be really important for what I'm, I'm thinking here. I think Donald Trump will be able to convince those, let's say, conservative Democrats and Republicans to create. A parliamentary system where he will be prime minister, he will appoint somebody to run as a president, as a ceremonial position. What I'm talking about here has it happens all the time. Uh, Russia is the clear example to me when Vladimir Putin ran for two consecutive th- terms and then Dmitry Medvedev ran for president but nominated him prime minister. And then after one term of Dmitri as president, Putin came back and won, and that's allowed in Russia's constitution. You've seen this in Turkey as well. In Turkey, Erdogan, if I'm not mistaken, was prime minister and the president was a ceremonial role, and then to overcome whatever issues he had, he, well, to overcome whatever term constraints he had, he then decided to run for president and bestow the presidency with the power to run the country. It's not impossible to overcome term limits on the presidency. And I believe that one way President Trump could do this is to create a prime minister position in the United States. And he will be prime minister if his presidential candidate won, r- runs and wins wins election in 2024. Again, we've seen it in other countries. What I just described is much easier than running, trying to get the Constitution amended, which I just, that's I don't think that's going to happen. I just don't see that happening. So yeah, I think Donald Trump is capable of convincing Republicans and everything I've seen, yes, he can convince Republicans to support a ceremonial presidential role and give the prime minister position the full authority of the federal government. And he would probably have Mike Pence run or something like that. And Mike Pence will nominate him prime minister and give him all the power to run the federal government. That's what That's what I foresee if he wins and wants to stay, obviously, beyond 2024. That's one way I I could see Donald Trump. And and nothing I have seen in the last three and a half years would, would surprise me if that's the route he went, which is creating a prime minister position in the United States that has the authority of a president, while the presidency is largely a ceremonial role to meet ambassadors and go to funerals or something like that. Because nothing in the Constitution prohibits a president from creating a prime minister. Well, the presidency does have certain executive powers. It is in the Constitution. But, you know, would would a law be sufficient to give some powers to a new role that has never been mentioned in the Constitution and it's the role of prime minister? There's going to be some legal leeway around that. And uh, that's the thing about the law is in today's world, you can begin to interpret and reinterpret laws and legislation in many different ways. And think about it. The Supreme Court would probably have the ultimate say over is the prime minister position role legal or not legal. And if they decide in a 5-4 decision that, look, the Congress and the, and the presidency has signed off and agreed to create a prime minister position. It's going to run some powers of the government. Maybe the president has to be the commander-in-chief. I don't know how that would be. Uh, That would probably be split between the prime minister and the presidency. Okay, and another issue that I felt like I I wanted to discuss and haven't been able to recently is to discuss. uh, Since I was discussing the future, I want to go back to the past. and Specifically, I want to go back to 1989 and the Cold War a week or two ago was uh, the 30th anniversary of 1989 and the fall of the Berlin Wall, which was really the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union. And this moment is a very interesting period in history, Um, not just because the Soviet Union fell, which nobody thought it would, and people never thought it would fall the way it did, which um, didn't unleash a massive civil war. But interesting, in the conversations I'm hearing today in the United States, and uh, mostly among sort of a liberal elite in power, is that this is a new Cold War between the United States and Russia, okay? That's what a lot of people are talking about today. And in my opinion, I don't necessarily agree. I actually would argue that the Cold War never ended. It continued in a different phase. Yes, Russia became smaller. But I, I wanted to explain in a podcast to people what happened to Russia in the 90s. Because if you read the history books, I, I'm going to tell you what, what was written about Russia. The collapse of the Soviet Union marked a great transformation In world history, in human history, the evil empire collapsed, and Russia joined the countries of democracy and free market capitalism, and everything was going to work out really well. It was going to be some tough going, but things were going to get fixed, and and Russia was going to join the countries of democracy. This was going to be the great period of liberty. People often talk about Francis Fukuyama's article, which people never read very carefully, but... I digress and I won't talk about it on this podcast, but I will in the future. But people were so hopeful that the fall of the Soviet Union marked this great period for democracy and free market capitalism. They were going to go hand in hand and it was going to work its way into Russia and Russia was going to become a quote unquote normal country that was what was said in the academic circles and newspapers journalists academics everybody wrote that pretty much sure there was always a couple outsiders if you look at the data you look at the numbers of the economy in russia it was one of the worst periods in its history ever okay so let's let's go through some facts here a third of russia's country a third essentially broke off into separate independent country, okay? 40 to 50% of the GDP collapse. I want to give you an idea of how much that would be today. That would be like if if the United States in a span of maybe a couple years lost $11 trillion, $12 trillion in in its GDP. That's the equivalent, okay? So you've lost a 30-year territory. You've lost nearly 50% of your economy. And the people who had been fighting you in this Cold War for decades now says, hey, this is a great period of liberty. You have, again, you did have independent media. You began to have an independent judiciary. You began to have a lot of these independent institutions emerge. But people did not invest in Russia like they should have. The people at that moment should have been doing a a massive Marshall plan for Russia. They should have wiped away the Soviet Union debt. They should have poured in hundreds of billions of dollars. And by the way, they did do this to other countries that used to be part of the Soviet Union. Here I'm thinking about Poland. They wrote off, uh, at least from what I've read from Jeffrey Sachs's book, something like 40, 50% of Poland's debt and gave it interest-free loans, giving it a lot of aid, build, rebuilding its infrastructure. Very little, very little was done for Russia. Yes, they sent the technical experts there to, again, privatize the state-owned industries. But guess what happened then? It's a bunch of oligarchs go in and take the country's wealth. For themselves run the country and then they created really shady deals in 96 i believe they essentially made a deal with boris yeltsin that he would allow them to keep the wealth that they had stolen from the country and they would do a campaign to convince him to stay as president and so look i'm not creating these excuses as, this is why russia hates us or anything like that because in you know, today Russia is an authoritarian state that I think is a dangerous country. I mean, where it is today politically is the opposite of what I believe in. It is the opposite. But it is important for people to understand that the tension that people have with Russia today comes from someplace. But I'm just looking back at 30 years ago and to, to talk about the shape today because Vladimir Putin comes into power, and look, I, I'm not an apologist for him at all. I think the poisoning that he's done in in, in London and other places, other things, the human rights abuses, Chechnya, there's, there's so many I could go talk about, but I'm not. But I, I wanted to create this audience, since the majority of people are listening in the United States, is to say, that period people talk about, about Russia in the 90s as some Great wave of liberal democracy has taken over Russia and things are going to go great. It didn't turn out that way for the vast majority of Russians, okay? It was rapid economic change, rapid. People's savings collapse. People weren't getting paid. It was the only country in the entire world to have life expectancy fall, during that period, people were getting paid, and this is not a joke, people were getting paid in vodka. And listen, a lot of people were alive in the 90s, early, late 80s, or uh, mid to early 90s. A lot of people are alive today and are maybe in their mid 30s, 40s. And remember this as teenagers, as young adults. People shouldn't forget that, that the experience Russia had as a liberal democracy was traumatic and look that And another reason why russia didn't do well and this you can look at sort of geopolitics is the price of oil had oil prices spiked in the earlier mid 90s like it did in the mid 2000s then russia might have had additional money and there might have been able to at least rebuild its economy quicker and to recover from the economic devastation that happened in the early 90s through reform efforts in Russia. Look, I'm not a Russia expert, but I've read enough and followed enough of the statistics that were produced. This is a traumatic period in a country. So it's not surprising that people at that period began to see somebody who's a strong man, willing to take up the world like Vladimir Putin and say, yeah, maybe we need a, a man who can rebuild our glory days. It's it's not that surprising to me. And I think people, people shouldn't underestimate that persuasion and then that power that people have. And look, if you don't believe what I'm saying, I respect that. That's part of what podcasting is about. Look it up for yourselves. Look up Russia's GDP figures from 1989, 1990, all the way to 1998. Also, they had an economic crisis again in 1998. But this is that period in the 90s was violently traumatic. What was known as the Soviet Union broke off. And so, you know, for, for Russia, this is a period where you begin to sort of question everything. And I think in many ways, they've now taken that question everything. What were we told? The Soviet Union collapsed. Well, let's make American empire collapse sort of idea. I think maybe this is a second phase in a sort of cold war between the Soviet Union and the United States. I don't know. That that's that's my maybe this is round two. First round was the Soviet Union versus the United States for decades and decades, and then in the nineties marked the new round. Russia somewhat joined the United States, but clearly has deviated away and has found some midway between authoritarianism and this uh, kleptocracy oligarchy running the country. And look, I, I disagree with their espoused beliefs. I mean, Russia is promoting this, what I think is is sort of right-wing populism around the world. Maybe they don't believe in it, but they're certainly promoting it. They're certainly willing to invest in it. They believe, some believe in the Russian government and that liberal democracy is killing the West and they're the last Rome. You hear about this sometimes. And only only Russia can save the West from itself. And so they're attacking gender studies and things like that that they feel are undermining Western civilization. Well, I oppose that idea and the stupidity that emanates from that. I oppose that entirely. And yet it is having a resonance. And I think that that's that's the scarier part than even Russia being this, you know, very bad country. There are elements in both Eastern and Western Europe, certainly in Eastern Europe and in the United States, that believe in this sort of authoritarian, populist, conservative movement that we see today. And we see it all around the world. We see it in many different places, in Brazil. In uh, Uruguay had a recent election. It looks like their conservative candidate has won. And you're now beginning to see people collaborate, collaborating online and fighting back and organizing against some of these movements. And here I'm thinking of Chile and Colombia has recently joined Chile in protests. Hong Kong, Hong Kong protesting its own. And, and it's this really interesting mix of of local resistance to power in in the modern world today. But I felt like I had to at least say that piece about Russia. I am firmly against authoritarian and populism. It's the opposite of democracy, which I believe in. But it didn't get there just one day after the Soviet Union collapsed. I think the West failed. The West failed in rebuilding Russia, didn't spend enough money. I mean, how much money could we have saved had we wiped away 70% of Russia's debt in the 90s and given it hundreds of billions of dollars to rebuild roads and infrastructures all throughout Russia or given it the ability to join the European Union in the uh, 90s after wiping away its debt and rebuilding the country, essentially from scratch, right? I mean, that's what they were doing. All the factories closed. Some people didn't have jobs. People were starving. Again, I talked about life expectancy collapsing. I think it was to 58 years during this period in the 90s. But when they talk about Russia, they have this nostalgia for the 90s. There were many amazing things going on there in civil society in Russia. And even today, I fully support those things. And I think those things are great. And they're emergence in the 90s was phenomenal. But when you look at the country and you look at the data and statistics of what was happening to the average Russian, it's not a hopeful sign. It's not that surprising that we have reached the point we are in today. Not to mention Russia aligning itself with the Donald Trump campaign and trying to help it win an election. And again, they've they've done this in Austria, where a candidate who I believed uh, had received money from Russia. There's also conversations of a candidate in France, I think it was the Le Pen has received some financing from Russia. Again, I don't know if they're just promoting the most far right and far left candidates in liberal democracy, but maybe that's how they see this new war emerging. It is authoritarian conservative populism against liberal democracy and free market capitalism. Maybe that's the new fight. Maybe that's the new Cold War. It is this authoritarian conservatism versus free market liberal capitalism. And it is an interesting battle that exists today that I I felt like I had to at least mention to people maybe who don't know or haven't read enough about Russia. But again, I think some of the things in the 90s were great, but I cannot stress enough that economic collapse stealing away by oligarchs of the economy and buying it for peanuts from what it was worth. The 1996 election, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, James Carville and other figures from the United States helped Boris Yeltsin win re-election, besides getting the oligarchs on board to also back Boris Yeltsin. And you can understand from a perspective, if he lost, then a communist would win again and then the West would see like, well, this person isn't going to be like Boris Yeltsin. And so people wanted to continue the reforms. And yet it all failed in Russia. I mean, in my opinion, it largely failed. The reforms in Russia in the nineties largely failed to build the what the West intended to build. And people can debate if it was done on purpose or not, but either way, it was a disaster for people in the country. And today, Russia is a very different country than it was back then. Today, countries has stabilized, is recovering. It is still largely dependent on oil and gas. But but just going back to the 90s, and, and I was thinking about this because a couple of weeks ago, we had the 30th uh, anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Walls. So it made me think of that period. And that's why I'm talking about this. But people people should not forget that Looking at Russian society and culture in the 90s is a really important factor when we begin looking at Russia today and what it's attempting to do and essentially create chaos. Makes me think of Russia being the little finger of the world politics today, all right? It's an agent of chaos, wants to promote, I guess, the far left and the far right and weaken democracy, liberal democracy that way. And it's quite clever strategy. And look, Soviet Union tried to do that in other ways. But today, with mass communication that we have today, YouTube, Facebook, and all these ways, they have more tools. They have more effective tools. So we're we're in this crisis, I could say, American crisis. We'll see what happens on November 3rd, 2020. I feel like I got to start a countdown clock. 342 days away. I will talk more about November 3rd, I am sure, with people around, but... That's episode 47 of Collateral Banter. I appreciate you listening. Felt like I needed to say this. And I hope people stay tuned. I will talk more about Baldryard, have more people on my show. Obviously talk about democracy and what's going on all around the world. So thank you for listening. Episode 47 of Collateral Banter. Take care. Peace.